Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We are also on Instagram, and we're members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Well, Mike, now the first Grand Slam of 2020 has, of course, come to an end in Melbourne, and Novak Djokovic has reigned supreme for an eighth time, while Sophia Kennan is a first-time Grand Slam champion. Canada had some ups and downs through its first major championship. We saw Denis Shapovalov, Felix Ojealiasim, Vashik Pospisil bow out in the first round. We did, though, have Milos Raonic make the quarterfinals, and then Gabby Dabrowski as well in doubles made the quarterfinals on the women's side and semifinals in the mixed doubles draw. Yeah, so we're going to recap all the action from the past two weeks uh, at the first slam of the year. And also on uh, tonight's episode, we've got guest Leila Annie Fernandez, uh, who's going to be on Canada's Fed Cup team once again against Switzerland this week, as well as one of the uh, one of our favorite uh, guests on the podcast, British tennis journalist, Yorkshire's finest, uh, Jonathan <laughs> Pinfield, who's going to uh, chat with us about the progress that the uh, so-called Next Gen has been making and, of course, his favorite player, uh, Sasha Zverev. Yeah, certainly. But uh, let's let's begin on the women's side. And I, I will mention Leila Annie Fernandez, also a name that had a successful tournament for Canada, uh, qualifying for her first ever main draw. But we had some names on our radar ahead of this tournament, the Naomi Osaka's, the Serena Williams names. And then beyond that, you're looking at other names like Ash Barty, Carolina Pliskova, maybe... Madison Keys winning a first Grand Slam title. Maybe Belinda Bencic. Sophia Cannon was really never on my radar as a contender to win a title here. Yeah, we didn't really have the Sophia Kennan versus Garbine Muguruza final no. penciled into our brackets. <laughs> Certainly did not. Beforehand, although it's funny because by the end of the tournament, you're looking at both of them and you're thinking, well, yeah, why not? The way things have gone, but also the the way that the two are capable and, and for Kennan, uh, the way she has been playing over the last year. I mean, she's into the top 10 and would have been regardless of, of winning the final. And that just speaks to the consistency that she's shown in her game. Last summer, we saw it at the Rogers Cup with a semifinal run that ended at the hands of Bianca Andreescu. She also followed it up at the semis uh, in Cincinnati, falling to Madison Keys. Uh, this is a young player, a 21-year-old player who, while I didn't have her in my top five picks for the, the Aussie Open this year, she would have been in that sort of second classification of, of players that could be dangerous and, and certainly could have had a deep run, but she exceeded my expectations and, and those of many, I think. Yeah, certainly. I think you're probably right. She was just in that next tier, just below those top contenders that we named and uh, many of them sort of bowing out early. Uh, but some signature wins for me. I, I think one that kind of stood out a bit earlier in the tournament, though we had progressed to the fourth round, was defeating Coco Goff, of course, the 15-year-old sensation. And American, I think, people are much more familiar with than Sophia Cannon. And Cannon was kind of up against it in that match, dropping the first set 7-6. You sort of have the crowd against you. Melbourne completely embracing this 15-year-old. And Kennan, uh with, you know, a stone-cold face, quickly turning that match around, winning the next two sets 6-3, 6-love. And then you imagine the atmosphere facing world number one Ashley Barty uh, at her home slam in Melbourne. And obviously, Barty could have been feeling the pressure too, but nothing really seemed to to phase Sophia Kennan at, at any point in this tournament. If it was her dropping a set or dropping a crucial game or being behind in difficult situations, she seemed like the probably the most mentally tough player of the tournament, and, and that's why he she's a Grand Slam champion now. It's interesting. I didn't think that Kennan had enough belief in herself yet 
that she belonged at this level. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly that she's in the top 20 and, and beating big names and capable of, of wins like that. But I didn't get the vibe yet that Sophia Kennan believed that she was ready to take that next step and win a slam. And in, in the pre-match, um, you know, preparation on TV, we saw an interesting little clip of Sophia Kennan in the locker room with Bethany Maddox-Sands. And Maddox Sands was was filming it sort of selfie style with Kenan realizing Andy Roddick was wishing her like best of luck in the finals. And Kenan was absolutely freaking out as if, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe Andy Roddick would. Well, of course he's going to. He's American. He's a slam champion himself. Yeah. And, and here you are about to play this big match that you've earned the right to play in. But I, I still she seemed almost like uh, like a teenager who couldn't believe that uh, that a great like Andy Roddick would recognize her. Well, now with this victory, uh, definitely she's got to have that extra belief. And it's going to be interesting to see how she moves forward from this one. Uh, but one thing is for sure, American tennis has some very bright prospects on the female side between Kennan, Coco Goff, who's still got all the time in the world to develop and grow as a tennis player, and Amanda Nisimova as well as another young uh, teenage talent who uh, who has had some good results already at a young stage in her career. Yeah, and Amanda Nisimova actually... Uh Within that top 30, meaning you have five Americans ranked inside the top 30 right now and uh, just one inside the top 10, Serena Williams. Sophia Kennan with this win isn't uh, quite there officially. Or sorry, no, she number is. Seven. No, number yeah, seven. You're number right. Sir, sir, there's yeah. two top 10s. So Sophia Kennan, number seven, and Serena Williams, number nine, which is a terrific result. And um, if you were kind of pointing to a match, I think, if we're talking specifically about the final with Muguruza, uh this signature sort of moment where this match turned on its head for me, Sophia Cannon serving 2-2 in the third set, love 40 on her serve. So she's facing three break points against someone who's won two Grand Slam titles before, has experience at, at this stage. And down love 40 in that spot, she ran off five consecutive winners. She had four winners from the baseline and, an and then hit an ace. That's unbelievable mental toughness. That's you hear something like that and you think of a, a Rafa Nadal like up against it or something. That's unbelievable to me. It's funny. I've got that written down as well in my notes here. We hadn't compared beforehand, but I thought that was for sure the turning point. I've got it written down in the second set that it was two two. She was down love forty. Um, but maybe it was the third. Oh no, I, I might I might be getting some. I think wrong. it was the second set because yeah, if she had lost her serve there, Muguruza could have just kind of steamrolled through that set and taken it in, in two sets. At least that's how I've, I've written it. I was so tired. It's tough to say, you know, um, <laughs> I think you got it right. but I was just so impressed with how she held her composure in those tough moments, how she came back out after the first set that yep. really went according to the script that I think most of us thought it was going to go with the veteran Muguruza who'd been in multiple slam finals, won a couple of uh, grand slams before, and she came out and really imposed her game. The Spaniard did in that first set. So for Kennan to regroup come out and you could tell she was kind of shaking off and and ready to start fresh and and she did that and and I was also very impressed with her ability to save break points mm-hmm. because I believe she saved 10 of the 12 break she points did. that she faced and then her conversion 5 out of 6 was was pretty lethal as well so in the big moments Kenan rose to the challenge and if you look on the flip side Muguruza kind of faded as that match got tighter and her serve in particular and those nine double faults, or eight, sorry, double eight faults, double faults yep. and some of them coming at such crucial moments, 
um, that, that just sucked the air out of her chances. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Kennan and that breakpoint conversion rate it definitely was, I think, crucial to this match. And as we say, just playing the big points, I think, a little bit better than Muguruza, who you could see kind of faded at the end of the third set, really feeling that pressure in that final game, which was a bit unfortunate to have a match ending on a double fault. That's not what you want on it's a championship worst. point. It's the worst. Uh, it's got to be the worst way almost you know, to end a match like that. As a tennis player, I've actually been there too. It's 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 brutal. Uh, but it, that that's how it ended, and that doesn't take anything away from Sophia Cannon and her moment capturing her first Grand Slam title. A couple quotes. This was a quote from her father, actually, uh, who said, Sophia has been undervalued, and she's been overshadowed by a lot of the American power players. But now America knows her and what she has. They know she is a champion. And I'm, I'm hoping not just America knows her. I, I'm hoping the full tennis world knows her now. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny because it's not like she's been around forever, you know, as a professional tennis player. It's not mm-hmm. like she's been ignored for such a long, long period no. of time. With 2019 really being the first year where she stepped up and started getting some big results. Yeah. Um, but, you know, proud pop. But that's okay. I get it, right? <laughs> I'm the same with my kids, protective of them. Sure. Um, but I think, yeah, probably widened the net of her exposure at this point. Um, uh, but but still not a household name, of course. Yes. Uh, so which brings me to my next question, and we can debate this. Uh, is Sophia Kennan and having a first-time slam champion at the Australian Open to open the year a good thing or not? Yeah, I don't know if it's a good thing or, or not. I just think it's, it is what it is, that she's done it. Yeah. And for me, I love seeing a, a first-time slam winner, whether it's a veteran like Caroline Wozniacki a couple years ago who most people knew about, yes. uh, even those who were just casual tennis fans, or someone like Sophia Kennan. I mean, this would likely propel her now to a level where if she sustains it, she's going to get into that realm of, of recognition. But uh, I, I don't know. Is, is finishing a year with a first-time slam champion like Bian- Bianca Andreescu, is, is that any better? Do you want to finish the year on something like that? Does it matter <laughs> if you're starting the year with a, with a first-time winner? I'm, I'm not too sure. What, what do you think? Well, in the case of Bianca Andreescu, and obviously we have a bias here being in Canada, and we could feel sort of the nation behind her, especially once you got sort of quarters, quarters semis, final against Serena. You could feel the heat and excitement over this of having a Canadian in this Grand Slam final and then her winning it. And I guess it's kind of hard to gauge when you're in a 16-hour time difference of what the feeling is around Sophia Kennan in Melbourne, Australia, if she's being embraced as this young rising superstar. And I just feel like she wasn't enough in our consciousness, and suddenly she's appearing in this Grand Slam final and winning it. Uh, All that I wish were the case is that more people really knew her name Mm. ahead of this final. I mean, us as as tennis fans and tennis journalists, we we knew who she was, and we were really properly introduced to her and her game uh, first, I think, when she defeated Serena Williams at the French Open and then seeing her up close in Rogers Cup. Uh, but I, I guess I just wanted more sports fans that I know to not be asking me, so who is this Sophia Cannon? I, I wish they had just known her. Right, and I think with Bianca back in the summer for Canada, as you mentioned, it was such a big thing in our country because we, we don't have past tennis accomplishments at that level, Correct. at least not in singles play, whereas in the U.S., yeah, they've got several players who've won slams in the past, and tennis doesn't really occupy, you know, as much in the in the overall, you know, news sphere, I guess, with other sports competing and whatnot, especially with the, the Super Bowl falling on the, uh, the exact same weekend. So overshadowed perhaps in part also by that uh, big sporting event happening in the States uh, and the fact that the U.S. has had and also currently has, you know, still on the women's side, more 
more to talk about overall, perhaps. Yes, certainly. And, and you know, Coco Goff is one of those stories that uh, the United States is talking about just in terms of tennis. And uh, she caught caught the harder caught, caught the hearts, pardon me, of the Australians while she was there. But Sophia Kennan won that big match over her huge win over Ash Barty and a victory over Garbina Muguruza, and she is now the champion. And how about Muguruza? We got to talk about her Absolutely. because she had a horrendous 2019. She went yeah. from Wimbledon onwards. She went one and six. And uh, came into 2020 with, it seems like, a new mindset. She's got the new coach in Conchita Martinez, Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, what a week for for the coach being, uh, first of all, uh, notified you're going to be inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame this year. And then having your new charge, I mean, she had worked with her years ago, but having your new charge making the finals of the first slam of the year as uh, an unseated player, a dangerous yet unseated player, I thought she had a fantastic tournament if you look at the players that she had to defeat. From the third round onwards, Svitolina, Kiki Burdens, Pavlyuchenkova, who was playing so well, Simona Halep, and then taking the first set of the finals against Kennan as well. I mean, she's got to look back on this as a big boost for her moving forward, reestablishing herself as a presence on the women's game. Certainly. I felt the way she was playing throughout the two weeks, she was almost a woman on a mission. I, I think I, we had spoken before the women's final, and I really felt that Garbina Muguruza was going to close it out just the way she had been playing tennis, beating top talent players like Simona Halep, and as you mentioned, just you know steamrolling Alina Svitolina comfortably in two sets. And uh, she just had this hyper-focused look on her face throughout the tournament. She wasn't showing, you know, grand moments of emotion with mega fist pumps or anything like that. It was, it was almost like she was in a zone for a lot of it. And it felt like she was really dictating play on her racket against basically everybody she played really until that final kind of turned on its head at one point uh, with Sophia Kennan getting that big hold from love 42 too. Uh, but a bunch of big wins. And no, what was interesting was the previous week she had played a warm up tournament at the Hobart international. She had a couple wins there and then had to retire from her third round I think it would have been a quarterfinal match because she was feeling ill she came to the tournament feeling ill and sluggish and not 100% at all gutted out a tough win in the first round I believe over uh, I think it was Shelby Rogers uh, lost the first set their six love and then uh got her win back and got a second win and won that match and then suddenly was rolling. But uh, she played a great match actually in Hobart the previous week against Ons Jabur and she beat Jabur 7-6 in the third. And I had watched the highlights of this match and I was like, wow, these two are both playing really great tennis, filled with hard-hitting, exceptional winners from the back of the court. And sure enough, now I'm following along this Australian Open. I was like, wow, these two players are carrying that momentum from how well they were playing in that match because we... If we're looking at some other names of great results, Anz Jabur was right there. But uh, certainly a great tournament from Muguruza. I really think she belongs in the top 10. What was a surprise to me last year, how she kind of faded from our, our consciousness and, and didn't have the results to back it up. And, you know, it's amazing in tennis how confidence can have such a big impact on you. Certainly. And sometimes changing the people around you and the way you look at the game. She she climbed, I think it was, what, Mount Kilimanjaro in the off season, and there were pictures of, of her doing that, which was pretty incredible. And just, again, that kind of accomplishment off the tennis court to give you just a confidence and belief in yourself and what you're capable of. And clearly that translated into the first slam of the year uh, she's done so well at such a variety of slams as well. She's got that game that just translates and transitions. And uh, she's only 26 years old, yeah, I 26. believe. I mean, I would have guessed older, actually, because it just feels like she's been around a little bit longer and accomplished more. Mm-hmm. She's still got a heck of a lot of time in front of her to uh, to turn things around and get back at that pace that she was at 
prior to 2019. Yeah, certainly. I, I think she's a definite threat at the clay. I mean, she won the French Open 2016, if I'm recalling, and she was in the semifinals there just a couple of weeks ago. So you have to view her, view her really as an all court surface threat. I mean, someone who's won Wimbledon too, and uh, you know, now been to a final of a hard court slam as well. So I think she's proven when she's playing her best tennis, uh, she is very, very hard to beat, and she's the one kind of in control from the baseline. She hits really, really powerful and really, really accurate ground strokes. So I hope she does kind of carry this momentum. I feel like she's one of the players who should be back at the top uh, having success. Other players that uh, we can kind of look back at the tournament uh, are heroes and zeros list, as uh, I know you'd like to call it over the past two weeks. Who really stood out to you? There were a lot of people that stood out to me on the women's side in the heroes column. Uh, you mentioned Anjabur, the first uh, Arab woman now to reach a quarterfinal of a slam. She had a very impressive tournament with some some big wins, including ending the career of Caroline Wozniacki. Um, there was Wang Sheng, who uh, beat Serena Williams, of course. That one was uh, super impressive to me, uh, considering Serena was really the pre-tournament favorite alongside perhaps Naomi Osaka. And, uh, and the way that uh, Wang Sheng just avenged that U.S. Open blitz from a few months ago against mm. Serena, that was also very noticeable. Uh, and if I had to pick one more, maybe a little bit off the, the radar, but uh, CeCe Bellis, who uh, makes the third round in her first slam since the Australian Open in 2018. Uh, Bellis, the young American, uh, went through multiple arm surgeries, was told by some doctors she'd never play again. So just the fact that she's back and playing tennis, not to mention winning a couple rounds after such a lengthy layoff, that to me puts her absolutely in the, the hero column. Yeah, certainly. And a couple names to add on, on top of that. Annette Contivate, a uh, terrific tournament, reaching the quarterfinals. Just a mammoth upset over Belinda Bencic, knocking her off the court 6-love, six 6-1. Six she was someone who was sort of on her radar later uh, last season. At the same time, she did reach the semifinals in Miami and someone who's just been taking steady steps uh, up the rankings, you think uh, she could maybe make top 15 uh, quite shortly, uh, given her trajectory, the way she's been going. Uh, very nice player right now. She's number 22 in the world. She also uh, spoke with us at the Rogers she Cup. Did. And I'm seeing a trend of players we talked to at the <laughs> Rogers Cup. We're bringing very good fortune. We're doing really well now. Yeah, certainly. And uh, Coco Goff, of course, an obvious one. Uh, the way she just dismantled Naomi Osaka, staying so composed in that match and so steady when Osaka was not having a good night. But Coco just staying completely in the zone and focused. Of course, beating Venus Williams to start that tournament and uh, coming back to beat Kirste in the, th- in the second round. And, you know, being very close against Sophia Kennan, who's the eventual Grand Slam champion. Certainly a success story there. In terms of players falling a little flat this week, uh, this past fortnight, actually, for me, I would start on the zeros column. She did win a couple of matches, but I think probably a big disappointment the way the draw unfolded for Karolina Pliskova to go out when she did. Uh, third round exit. I know Pavlochenkova was playing great tennis, uh, but... Now 27 years old, Pliskova, we're still waiting for that Grand Slam breakthrough. And Serena Williams had lost her match the previous day. It really felt like a door was opening for Pliskova to make a run. uh, And maybe she thought about that too much. Maybe that crossed her mind too much, seeing how that draw was opening for her. Right. But yeah, I feel like for a couple of years now, I mean, it's been a couple of years since she first grabbed the number one ranking there. And she's number two, maybe down to number three now, I believe, after this event. But uh, we've been talking about how she's the, not the next one, but the, one of the most talented to not have a slam. Yeah, and she won a title leading into the tournament in Brisbane, beat Keys there in the final. You'd think she would be coming in with a lot of confidence. And 
I, I think she is a player that that it is weighing on her mentally that she hasn't broken through for it a Grand Slam title. It has to be. And then you see your coach, Conchita Martinez, who you just parted ways with, getting to the finals with one of your fellow competitors. That's right. That, that's got to hurt, too, on some level. Yeah, I, I think so. Other names that I had obviously put on the zeros list. Serena Williams is an obvious one, losing to Wang Xian uh, in three sets, a player that she had beaten 44 minutes at the U.S. Open. A player that a lot of people were penciling in to win this Grand Slam title. And unfortunately, another Grand Slam has come and gone. And when Serena Williams doesn't win it, it just magnifies the discussion of can Serena Williams win another title and uh, tie this record set by Margaret Court. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't call the result unprofessional like Serena did. <laughs> no, I thought but, that was uh, a little a bit of a but harsh it was, critique. It was certainly a match and an opponent, no disrespect, that Serena Williams should be getting through. Yeah. Uh, and again, the clock for her more than anyone, uh, except for her sister Venus, I guess. But in terms of contenders, the clock is ticking for Serena and she's got to make the most of these opportunities because there's only so many more that she's going to realistically have. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ni- Naomi Osaka, of course, on my list there as well. Credit to Coco Goff for beating her. But but Osaka falling uh, in the third round is disappointing and now really falling in the rankings. Number 10 next to her name, which I think is a disappointment. One other I wrote on my list, uh, Sloan Stevens. I don't know what is going on yeah, with me her. Me neither. It's it's puzzling. And there was that coaching controversy where she kind of poached Kamau Murray back from uh, Monica Pui last summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very emotionally distraught Monica Pui because she didn't see that one coming. And and that hasn't yielded anything really for Sloane Stevens since she's gone back to him as coach. So, yeah, I've got her in that column too. And I thought Arena Sabalenka was going to do a little bit more damage because I had watched her uh, soundly defeat Simona Halep a week or two before the Aussie Open, and she looked so dialed in in the forehand. She was just crushing it, and she bows out in the first round to Carlos Juarez Navarro. So uh, definitely some where we expected more from them, and, uh, well, it'll be on to the next one, I guess, as uh, the tour continues and things move forward. Uh, but it's still a three-month wait now before the next slam comes around. Yes, it is. Still plenty of major titles, though, before the uh, second major, as it were. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Lewis, SN590. And you can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis. I think we can cycle back to uh, the women uh, because you did have an opportunity to speak with Layla Annie Fernandez, but maybe before we get to that, uh, touch on the men's side and uh, Novak Djokovic racking up an unbelievable eighth title at the Australian Open uh, and 17th Grand Slam overall, uh, a slam that he has just completely dominated really since he first won it beating Joe Wilfried Sanga. now 12 years ago and uh, here he is again defeating Dominic team in a long five set match and we thought for stretches of this match we were potentially seeing a changing of the guard we thought maybe this is the moment where one of these younger players disrupts the mantle that is the big three uh, but no I, surprises that Djokovic I almost, pulled it off. <laughs> I almost had the tweets ready to go. I was getting so uh, excited. Nothing against Novak. I was getting so excited at the prospect of finally one of these under 30 guys coming along and winning a slam. And I'm sure journalists who were watching live and at home covering the event had their whole article already laid <laughs> out there after team came back to take sets two and three and looked like the momentum was just going his way. And he had you know, come back from, from losing that first set, put it behind him. And, and I thought, yeah, I think, I think we're actually going to see it here. Mm -hmm. And of course, of course, you can never, 
ever count Novak Djokovic out. I mean, he showed it so well to the brink of defeat twice last summer at Wimbledon against Roger Federer. This guy is never done for until you've won that match point, which obviously never came team's way to even get to that stage. Um, but I think it does show that these this next group is making inroads. And when you look at three of the last four slam finals, team in two of them, Medvedev in one of them, we're starting to see that those young guys are making progress. Certainly. That being said, all the credit in the world to Novak Djokovic, who jumps back up to number one in the world and uh, his eighth Aussie Open. I wonder if he could catch Rafa in terms of, you know, the French Open versus the Aussie. <laughs> he could, though, maybe. Well, he'd have to play at least another four years. Uh, and I think for that to happen, Nadal has to stop winning French Opens completely. That's true. Because I'm, getting, he, I'm getting carried away. <laughs> if he gets Roland Garros up to 13, that might be too much for Novak to pull off at, at the Australian Open. Uh, but yeah, the story for, for this match for me was uh, Djokovic being unflappable again mentally, down but out, kind of on the ropes, but you still can't tame him. And it's something we saw in the Wimbledon final against Roger Federer. I I mean, two match points, two championship points on Roger Federer's racket with Djokovic returning, and he still will not go down. We didn't get to that stage in this match, but as you said, the tides had completely turned when uh, Djokovic uh, dropped that second set, and then team steamrolled through that third set where we saw a listless, exhausted-looking Djokovic uh, drinking all these types of potions and fluids with odd colors. We didn't know what was in them. Well, but, come on, uh, potions. What do you think he's drinking <laughs> he, there? He used the word potions in <laughs> his uh, press conference. Okay, so, I missed that so that's that's the only reason I'm using it. <laughs> Not a critique at all. Uh, no, so he was clearly desperate for some electrolytes. His energy levels had suddenly crashed uh, completely in that third set. And if we're talking again about signature moments in matches, two of them really stood out for me here. The first one being in that fourth set, team with all the momentum and a two sets to one lead. Uh, Djokovic serving at 1-1 and team having a great opportunity to break a look at break point. Djokovic deciding to serve and volley and it works with success. Escapes that game, finds a way to win that fourth set. Another moment for me. Coming in that fourth set, Dominic team serving at 3-4, love, misses a routine volley, hitting the top of the tape, doesn't go over, double faults, forehand error, unravels in a 3-4 game on his serve, and suddenly you felt when Djokovic came back and won that fourth set, he was going to take over. Oh yeah, and he breaks early in the fifth set, and then he's pushing team on every one of the Austrian service games in that mm -hmm. fifth set. Like team was doing everything he could just to stay down one break, in that in that fifth set uh there there were moments i mean there was a 28 point rally with djokovic serving at 4-3 that that team captured coming to the net for for love 15 yes but then you still need three more points <laughs> and Novak right. just wasn't going to give that up yeah uh, i mean of all the slams where you can you can just count on on him to this is the one and i was looking at his prize money at the aussie open he's won almost 20 million dollars of prize money alone at the Australian Open in his career. I mean, that's way more money than most pros will ever see in their entire uh, tennis careers, professional careers. Yeah, it, it's truly incredible. But uh, in terms of making inroads, as you point out, uh, another example, this is the third Grand Slam final for Dominic Team. And if you look at these past three Grand Slam finals, two at Roland Garros, 2018-2019, and then the 2020 Australian Open, first time he played Rafael Nadal at Roland Garros 2018, a bit of a whitewash. 
straight sets win for Nadal. No trouble at all. Second time he plays Nadal at Roland Garros. It goes four sets. He makes it more interesting. And now his third Grand Slam final, he pushes Djokovic to the brink. It goes five sets this time. He's so, getting closer. Fourth time, if he gets to a Grand Slam final, is that going to be the charm, maybe? Well, I don't know. It depends who who it's against and when. <laughs> is it at Roland Garros against Rafa again? I don't, right. you know. Um, but but for him to take out, um, I'm drawing a blank, to take Nadal. out Rafa. Thank you. To take out <laughs> Rafa uh, and then come back and, and give it his all and not, you know, he spent six more hours on court up to the finals, you know, compared to Djokovic. Yeah. And yet, boy, in sets two and three, was he ever looking good. Um, and he's only a hundred points, less than a hundred points now behind Roger in the rankings for, uh, for the number three spot. So he's, uh, yes, he will have a lot of points to defend coming up with the clay court uh, swing. Well, not only the clay court swing, but winning Indian Wells true, as true. well. So that's a thousand points there. That will be difficult. Uh, but yeah, as you said, that has to play a, maybe a bit of a factor, his road to the finals versus Djokovic's road, which before his first round match where he dropped one set to Jan Leonard Struff. He didn't drop a single set after that. And, of course, he faced a hampered Roger Federer in the semifinals, but it was such easy coasting uh, prior to that with wins over Nishioka, Diego Schwartzman comfortably in straight sets, beating the Canadian Milos Raonic in straight sets. And and Milos was coming into that match having not dropped his serve, playing his best tennis, and Novak Djokovic just completely neutralized his best shot. He's 10-0 against the uh, Maple Leaf missile, unfortunately, now with with that victory. But you are right. Milos was looking really, really good, and that kind of came out of nowhere because he had sort of you know, uh, limped out of 2019 with injuries and whatnot. And we were questioning his, his fitness levels and, and he came in and got off to a great start to the year. If we talk briefly about sure. Milos yeah. being the Canadian, not the one that any of us were talking about heading in. And I think that gave him a little chip on his so- shoulder, you know, that he wants to be in that conversation that he still to date got the biggest results on the, the men's side in the singles game, making the finals of Wimbledon and not to mention, uh, you know, other moments in his career to this point. Uh, he's still very much relevant when he's healthy, and we can only hope that this year he's able to stay healthier than he has the past couple of years. Yeah, that is the hope, and uh, he has the ability, as uh, CEO Michael Downey pointed out, peaking at the Grand Slams, and now it's about managing a, a healthy season. He's 32nd in the rankings right now, and as you said, though, looking at the way he was playing through that first week, he felt like a top 10 player. Absolutely. He really did uh, with the quality of that serve. And I thought his his forehand uh, was terrific all through the week. And even on the backhand even side, his he backhand was, was looking was pretty solid. good. Yeah. Yeah. So so credit to him. Uh, obviously, He's in the hero. He's in the hero column. He has to be in the yes. hero column. And we'll transition to the hero column right now. So we'll start with Milos Raonic making uh, a quarterfinal uh Dominic teams obviously in the hero column. Uh, so picking out a few other names, uh, Sasha Zverev, first Grand Slam semifinal, obviously uh, an incredible result and managing it when he had not been in any type of form coming into the tournament. ATP Cup was a disaster where he was 0-3 in singles, but uh, making a run to the semifinals, just dominating on his way, not dropping a set, beating Andre Rublev, who was the hottest player on tour prior to that in straight sets. Of course, a major win for, for Sasha Zverev. Who do you have on your list? And Sasha was going to donate all of his prize money if he had won the Aussie he Open, was. he said, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, sticking with that prize money donation theme, uh, Nick Kyrgios, uh, and I haven't said this maybe ever, but uh, hero for spearheading and starting the whole uh, idea of aces for Australia and helping with the bushfire relief. 
and his just mature approach to the tournament in general. I thought we saw a side of him, a consistent side of him uh, that we haven't seen in a while. And if he can stick with that, you know, mental approach to the game, I think that bodes well for him down the road. He's up six spots in the rankings to number 20 as well. So that's good for Nick Kyrgios. And then I've got some sort of unsung heroes, guys like Martin Fuksevics, who started mm. so well defeating Denis Shapovalov, beating the young uh, Yannick Sinner. He looked really solid. He's up 14 spots to number 53. John Millman was heroic in his match against Roger Federer, of course. even though he ended up on the losing side. And uh, even closer to defeating Federer was Tennis Sandgren, who's up 44 spots to number 56 in the rankings. And all of those guys had uh, Aussie Opens to be proud of, for sure. Yeah, terrific. I'll also add in because uh, I called him as my breakthrough player at the tournament and great to see Stan Vavrinka making a quarterfinal run uh, at the Australian Open, beating Daniil Medvedev, who I think was maybe in people's minds more so than Dominic Thiem true. as uh, one of the next-gen players who was going to have that breakthrough at, at a Grand Slam at the at the Australian Open. Uh, so Stan Vavrinka standing up to the challenge and beating him in five sets before losing to Sasha Zverev uh, was a terrific, remarkable result. I will say uh, I had the chance to speak with our next guest who uh, we will prelude because we were talking about Sasha Zverev uh, from Yorkshire. And uh, you've had a chance to speak with him before. Jonathan Pinfield, who is a uh, great, fun personality. And He's a riot. He really is. He's just is. a riot. Yes. And, uh, you know, I love his accent. You love his accent. And... Uh, a top 10 tennis player was obsessed with his accent. Yeah, I mean, that's what started the whole bromance between the two a couple years ago at the French Open. It continued last year in Paris as well as Jonathan made his return there. Uh, he's a guy that doesn't get to cover tennis as much as he'd like to, but when he does, he really draws people in. Great conversations with the tennis fans and bringing the community together on tennis Twitter as well, which, you know, can be such a divisive area for, for tennis folks. But he's got the ability to sort of take the edge off, let people bring down their guard, uh, and certainly we've seen that in press conferences before. And so happy for him to see his guy Zverev have a, a breakthrough moment like that. And we're always happy to have him here on the podcast. So I'm uh, looking forward to sharing your interview with Jonathan Pinfield from, uh, from over the, uh, the ocean. Well, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jonathan Pinfield. You can follow on Twitter at Tweets by JP. Before I guess we get into to the tournament and a little bit about uh, your friend and uh, top player Sasha Zverev, I, I want to maybe just get a quick backstory from uh, from your end, just uh, for our listeners, on how you sort of developed a bit of a rapport with uh, Sasha Zverev, uh, the top ten player from Germany. Absolutely. Well, as uh, some listeners might know, I'm the head of sports for the UK-based radio station Live Sports FM. Uh, and once a year, uh, my colleagues let me out of the office, <laughs> time off for good behaviour, and my treat every year is to go to Roland Garros, where I get to chat to some of the world's best players for two weeks of the year. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to ask Sasha Zverev a couple of questions uh, at the press conference. Uh, I spent a lot of time planning my first ever question to him, asking me if he thought this could be a breakthrough year. Uh, and he had to admit, he loved my accent, but he couldn't understand the word I was saying. <laughs> so we didn't necessarily get off on the best footing, but uh, I hope that through the uh, universal languages of tennis and love, uh, we uh, broke through those barriers. And uh, yeah, I think a bit of an unlikely bromance uh, developed, certainly at Roland Garros back in, uh, 2017, uh, uh, 
back in 2018. Uh, and I also got the opportunity to uh, chat to him again last year at Roland Garros, where he proudly declared that uh, if he won Roland Garros, the first thing that he would do to celebrate would be to visit my home county of Yorkshire. Uh, but as we uh, know, that didn't quite happen. And uh, last year was a bit of a roller coaster for him. Yeah, last year, last season certainly was a roller coaster for him. And uh, this is, in a way, why we were so surprised uh, to see the result he did put up in Melbourne, uh, reaching the semifinals of the Australian Open, his first Grand Slam semifinal. He he had not really been playing his best tennis uh, coming in. Were were you surprised to, to kind of see him put together such a great result? I was really concerned about form and his frame of mind towards the end of the year. It looked like all his form had deserted him. Uh, he had a lot of difficulties building up off the court with the breakdown of a personal relationship. And also he uh, wasn't working with his uh, longtime manager, uh, Patricio Ape. Uh, and as a lot of people will know, there were ongoing legal battles. Uh, and he quite openly said towards the end of the year, he was having to take on a lot of responsibility off the court. Uh, and I was concerned for him, uh, but very luckily, Ben, I got the opportunity to watch him play at the ATP uh, Tour Finals in London at the O2. I was very impressed with his win versus Danny Medvedev uh, in the last group stage. Uh, made it through to the semi-finals, which was quite a competitive match against Dominic Team. Uh, lost that unfortunately, but by getting through to the semi-finals, which of course he's he actually won. ATP World Final the year before, uh, I thought he'd actually turn the corner. Uh, and like a lot of tennis fans, I was looking forward to the start of 2020 with quite a lot of optimism. And then we had the ATP Cup. <laughs> and we thought, OK, there's a bit of a problem here. And it looked like Sasha had reverted uh, to a lot of the issues that he's had uh, the previous year. Uh, and he was very honest about his form as well. And the biggest concern, I think, for anyone who follows Sasha's career and, and tennis fans who are looking for the next generation to be able to break through, was that he really admitted uh, that he'd lost his service game, really. He was serving a lot of double faults. I think last year he'd served something like the second most double faults on the ATP tour. We thought that that had been resolved. And as you say, he came into the uh, Australian Open with a bit of good form behind him at the end of 2019. A really poor start by his own standards to 2020. So, yeah, I was worried, I was concerned, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I think we saw in the first round match when he actually won in straight sets uh, and wasn't hitting double faults that, yeah, there were encouraging signs. Yeah, and I, I think uh, one thing that probably helps there of in this tournament was the spotlight really was off of him. He wasn't being listed as one of those contenders who could potentially break through and, and win a grand slam given the form that we had seen from him coming in, but uh, played a great tournament, made the semifinals, had a great straight sets win over Andre Rublev, which I think surprised a lot of people. And then uh, bowing out to Dominic team in, in a close match uh, as well. Maybe aside from Zverev or are there any, sort of next generation players, you know, outside of that big three uh, or within the top 10 that that have really captured your attention and are you're keeping your eye on for maybe this season? Well, I'm sure along with you, Ben, you know, I was someone watching the final where uh, Novak Djokovic obviously started off well and then Dominic Team won the next two sets. 
and everyone's starting to think, right, okay, is this a changing of the guard? Could we be on the brink of a new era here? Uh, and once again, it didn't quite happen. So, as you said, we've got the top three of Djokovic, Nadal and Federer uh, still winning Grand Slams. And then you've got a cluster of sort of three or four below them there. You've got Dominic Team, who has broken through to Grand Slam finals at both Roland Garros and now the Australian Open. You've got Danny Medvedev, who was arguably the, you know, the standout breakout player last year in terms of progressing through the ranks and challenging. You've got Stefanos Tsitsipas, of course, who's just a year younger than Sasha Zverev. He's 21, Sasha Zverev 22. And then you've got Zverev at uh, number seven. So you've got Team Medvedev, Tsitsipas uh, and Zverev. Realistically, below them, can you see the likes of Berrettini, Monfils, Goffin and Fanini competing? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but someone who you mentioned a few minutes ago, who's you know started off the year, uh, in great form and had, went on a great unbeaten run, Andrei Rublev. So could he be the one at the age of 22 to break through the ranks? I have to say that of the next crop coming up, Dominic team looks in prime position. But if you look at the form guide between team Medvedev, Sitsipas and Zverev, they all seem to beat each other and they all seem to have one bogeyman who they consistently lose against. So if you look at the various head-to-heads, there's no real emerging pattern other than the fact that on the day they can all beat each other, but some of the players have got a stronger game on particular surfaces that means that they've got a better head-to-head record. The only thing I'd say to mitigate that fact, Ben, is that in terms of experience and in terms of working the way through the ranks, Dominic team's 26. Mm-hmm. So he's had a few more years on the tour. He's a bit more experienced than Tsitsipas, Zverev, you know, Medvedev, uh, and the other player that I keep mentioning, Andrei Rublev. Uh, so that's a really long answer uh, to basically say I haven't got a clue. <laughs> uh, no, but I think you're kind of uh, in that same frame of mind that uh, we are here at Matchpoint Canada, and uh, I, I kind of put our crop of Canadians in in that similar light as the the Russians like Andrei Rublev, and I'll mention a Karen Hatchinov, who had a pretty good Australian Open as well. Denis Shapovalov is right in the mix in that ranking, uh, in that you know 15 to 16 zone, and Felix Ojeda-Aliassime is 21st, and of course Milos Raonic had a terrific uh, run in Melbourne, reaching the quarterfinals, and is always so reliable at Grand Slams. We have a few great Canadians right now uh, on the men's side doing well. Just uh, wondering from your vantage point, what's the state, do you think, of tennis in, in the UK? Because, of course, Andy Murray been been battling with injury. And then we have seen some positive play, I think, from, from players like Daniel Evans, though he's on the older side. Yeah, absolutely. There are obviously question marks about the future uh, of Murray with his ongoing injury situations. He came back and uh, won a tour event towards the end of last year, which we were really delighted with. But... Uh, the British press are obviously reporting that he can't have too many more injury setbacks, even if the secondary injuries, because the stage that he's at with his career and, and, and the way that his body is holding up, uh, yeah, there are obvious concerns. The person who was next in line, who I've actually had the opportunity to chat to a few times, is 25-year-old Kyle Edmund, mm-hmm. uh, who took over the mantle from Andy Murray, but he had a pretty disastrous <laughs> uh, last season, unfortunately. His form... Uh, actually mirrored uh, 
Zverev, to be honest, in that, you know, all form deserted him. It was, you know, it wasn't too long ago. I think he was getting through to a, a semi-final of the Australian Open. But, yeah, his form seems to have deserted him. Dan Evans is still on the scene. On his day, he's capable of beating anyone, but he's got the consistency. And then you've got another British player on the male side, of course, Cam Norrie. Uh, Cam Norrie's a bit younger. Uh, again, he's got a very aggressive style of play, uh, but I think unlikely to ruffle any major feathers uh, in the big ones. So I think from a British perspective, we've got more confidence uh, in the women's game of someone like Joe Conta mm-hmm. uh, to possibly shape. certainly has got the capability to get through to a, a final of a Grand Slam already made semi-finals. A lot of her game is about confidence and believing in her own processes. So uh, possibly uh, a bit like Canadian tennis, uh, the phrase that we like to use for holding response, we don't know what is going on, is we're in a bit of a transitional phase. Uh, which we're in uh, since Fred Perry won through to Andy Murray, and now we're possibly in another one. I hope it's not another 77 years now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, I, I like the prospect of Kyle Edmund, and he is still just 25. He feels like a guy who should be, you know, solidifying his spot inside the top 30, top 25, and around the top 20. The, the number 64 ranking doesn't seem to suit his game, so we'll see if he kind of turns it around in 2020. Uh, we'll wrap on the note with Sasha Zverev, because that's, uh, that's where we started. Um, if you had to maybe pick a spot for him to win a Grand Slam, where do you think he would be most likely to do it? He said himself that he thinks the US Open, uh, what we've seen on the evidence of the last year and a half, is a happy Alexander Zverev off the court is a very dangerous player on the court. We know he's got the game. The questions are all about his temperament and his service game. So I would say if you can find Alexander Sasha Zverev in a happy, buoyant frame of mind going into a tournament, he's dangerous. Uh, if he has any external issues in terms of his relationships or the management situation or let's just say in the broad context, external factors, they're the ones that he's got to battle. If he can sort out what's going on off the court, if he's in a positive frame of mind, he's got a good team around him, he's enjoying the positive working experience alongside his father, who's also a mentor or a coach. On his day, he can beat anyone. Um, The impressive thing that we saw at uh, the Australian Open is he started winning in three sets, which is really crucial. You can't be playing the first, second, third round and being in long, grueling five sectors. If he can master the art of getting through the early rounds, winning three sets, being in a positive frame of mind. And I'm going to be a bit self-indulgent now, Ben, uh, because the only Grand Slam that I'm likely to attend this year will be Roland Garros. So let's say, why can't Sasha win Roland Garros? Yeah, I would love to pencil him in as one of those contenders for Roland Garros. Of course, it's uh, Rafael Nadal's tournament to lose, but uh, seeing what Dominic Thiem is, has been doing uh, now on a hardcourt surface as well, he's got to be a contender to win that. Djokovic, surely a contender. And why not Sasha Zverev? We'll see what he can produce on the clay this season and, and great step forward for him uh, in Melbourne. And uh, Jonathan, thanks as always uh, for joining us on the program. I know we can uh, follow, follow your work on Twitter, at Tweets by JP, and uh, we're looking forward 
hopefully to see you get more opportunities to uh, further your bromance with Sasha via some questions in the press room. Absolutely. Well, uh, fingers crossed all will go well, and I look forward to chatting to you when I'm at Roland Garros. There you have it with my conversation with Jonathan Pinfield. Reminder, you can follow him on Twitter at Tweets by JP. And, uh, you know, we also had a chance to sort of talk about, as you can hear in that conversation, Canadian tennis and its progress versus UK tennis, which is not really in the same spot. And I was touching on the fact that uh, Kyle Edmund, uh, still ranked in the 60s, is just very surprising to me because he's a player who you feel like should be in the top 30, top 25 of the sport. Well, that was an Aussie Open semifinal appearance, what, a couple of years ago That's for right. Edmund, and we all thought that was going to propel him while Andy was off with his injuries. Edmund seemed like he was ready to sort of pick up a little bit the, the mantle there and, and the momentum and, and go with it and he's he's kind of stalled out so uh it's just interesting i guess when you look at nations uh th- there are very few nations that can sustain greatness for long periods of time and there are going to be ebbs and flows of course for the brits looking forward to having a healthy andy murray back in the mix who i think would make things interesting but uh thanks to jonathan pinfield great to have him back on again and we'll certainly have to touch base during roland garris oh definitely I, and i really hope he has the opportunity to go uh and and see his buddy sasha's bear and all the great tennis there once once more just uh to add on to that subject of different nations and success i was just doing a quick glance at the top 10 on the men's side top 10 is from 10 different countries well there you go well that just shows it right yeah so completely diverse in that sense of uh, where all these great tennis players are coming from. And uh, we would love to see a Canadian back in the top 10. Uh, Denis Shapovalov falling to number 16, I will point out. Uh, we'll just kind of quickly run down what's happening on the men's side before we uh, transition back to the women. As Denis Shapovalov is playing in Montpellier, France this week. And unfortunately, we'll get an all-Canadian matchup where he faces Vashik Pospisil, who did it defeated Alias Bedene, but I would love to see this as a great quick bounce back tournament for Shapovalov after a disappointing tournament in Melbourne. So you're saying you want to see him beat Vashik Pospisil? Is that what you're saying, Ben? <laughs> I don't mean to pick on <laughs> Vashik Pospisil. Love the guy, one of the nicest guys on tour, and it's a win-win situation. We'll have a Canadian uh, in the quarterfinals, actually, uh, whoever wins this match, but I-, I think this match is more important for Denis Shapovalov as the favorite than it is for Vashik the underdog. I will take the flip side of that argument just because <laughs> I've always enjoyed talking with Vashik Pospisil yeah. and, and I think he needs it more because yeah. he's got to get his ranking back up okay. Okay. into the top 100. Dennis can afford to, you know, he's in the top 20. He's not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think Vashik needs to get back into the top 100. Hey, ideally, let's just push these matches off until the quarters or the semis and, and hopefully not have them so early, but it's a testament to how much Canadian talent and, and what a presence we have uh, in the men's game now um, with guys who are either in the top 100 or knocking on the, the door of the top 100. And, um, you know, the last time they met, it was a 6-4, 7-6 uh, victory for Chapeau. And uh, we'll see how this one goes. Both are going to want to win badly because both of them had a disappointing Aussie Open, unfortunately. Yes, that's true. Uh, I could see another similar scoreline like a couple of tie breaks the way Vashik Pospisil has been serving so efficiently and and Denis Shapovalov as well like kind of underrated big serve and Vashik really takes care of his serve so I think it'll be an interesting match and we'll mention Felix Ojealiasim also in that draw I think right now he might be the Canadian with the most to prove like in terms of getting back in that win column uh yeah Felix has to turn things around 
sophomore slump. You know, it's that second year as a pro kind of. Well, uh, it's, if we can keep the sophomore slump to just one month minimum, right. that, that would be nice. And for Felix, who knows? Maybe it's going to be uh, clicking here in France. Maybe it's going to be returned to clay court at some point. That's right. That helps spark things. We're going to have to wait and see but it's not surprising because Dennis went through a similar thing in his second year mm-hmm. where people were expecting more and faster and where are the results and it's like whoa chill the kid's 19 years old right <laughs> yes so it's all part of that learning process and you know the mental ups and downs that you're dealing with for the first time too um but yeah Felix uh, definitely I would say has been the most underwhelming of the the gentleman we've just spoken about um but it, it could be a tournament and all of a sudden boom he's back on track as well yes and he has the game to pull that off uh, especially at an atp 250 where he's going to be one of the top talents there he'll start his tournament against damir Jumer. uh we'll continue and talk about one more canadian also a teenager and 17 years old and a great success story in my eyes uh in melbourne australia uh, qualifying for her first ever Grand Slam, and we've spoken to her in the past. Such a friendly, nice, kind personality is Layla Annie Fernandez. And Mike, you had another great uh, opportunity to talk about Layla before Canada heads over uh, for Fed Cup preparation and gets set for a tie against Switzerland. That's yeah, funny. She's just 17 years old, and I feel like we've already talked to her a, a ton of times on the podcast. Yeah. She's always very uh, accessible to us, and uh, now she's more accessible on social media, too, mm-hmm. as she is on uh, Twitter, at uh, Layla Fernandez. I believe off the top of my head, Ben's going to check on that for you guys, but I think that's where you can find her, as she is amassing her followers, and uh, no doubt she's going to do that as uh, as she's becoming more and more a constant presence for Canada uh, at Feb Cup competition. She's going to be there to help take on the Swiss. And she might have to play a really prominent role depending on where Bianca Andreescu's body is and the healing process is on that knee at this point. She's over there practicing in Switzerland. Uh, but we don't know just yet exactly if she's going to be able to compete or not. She's only going to play if she's at 100%. And if she's not, well, you can expect that Leila Annie Fernandez might be the go-to singles player for Canada right now. Yeah, I was going to say, I think she is probably the most reliable name on the singles side beyond Bianca right now. So if if that is the case where you have to lean on Leila at, at Fed Cup, uh, I would absolutely love to see that. And that would be a great opportunity for her uh, just at the age of 17. Uh, we'll take a listen now to uh, your interview with Leila Annie Fernandez. Leila, Annie, this is already the fourth time we've talked to you at Matchpoint Canada now, which I believe ties you with Bianca for most appearances on our podcast. So I want to thank you for being so accommodating and for joining us once again today. Oh, hi. Yes, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a big honor to be there again. Well, I appreciate you saying that. We're, uh, we're into the new year, and uh, this is one that you'll play fully as a pro for the first time. Uh, you've just qualified... Yeah and played in your first main draw of a slam. So I want to ask you, how does it feel to have made that transition now from the juniors and to close that that chapter on uh, on that part of your young career? It's, a, it's honestly amazing, but I'm super happy to be able to start off the year in a good step of being able to participate in the, quali- in the qualifying of Melbourne, but also qualifying which is not easy, but I was happy I was able to do it, and um, hopefully many more will come this year. When you look back on all of last year, what was your personal highlight of 2019? That's a very hard question. Like, I would say from 
the beginning to the end has been a big highlight for me that even though I've lost some matches, won some matches, everything is a learning experience, like my dad and coach say. So that everything that I've done last year is to help me for the future, and it helped me a lot for the, for the Australian qualifying. So I guess if it's tough to pick one in particular, it must mean you had a pretty yeah, it's, pretty. It's super hard. Must mean you had there's a pretty so good many year. Tournaments I remember that that it's been ups and downs, and there's so many tournaments and matches that I remember being so happy and also being sad. But everything is amazing, and I'm happy to start off the year in the right way. What kind of goals have you set for yourself in in 2020? Are you hard on yourself, or are you pretty reasonable when you set targets for the new year? pretty reasonable that uh, like every other year the first goal is always to be healthy that um, we don't want to have any injuries or any emotional uh, problems which I'm so happy that I'm back uh, on court <laughs> and then the second which I would say is the most important for me is to finish the in the top 100 WTA. And you're getting there because, as we speak right yeah. now, you're you're just on the cusp of the top 200. Yes, yeah, so I'm happy. I was a bit disappointed I couldn't finish the top 200 last year, but to be able to start off the year in the right in the right uh, foot, the right step, and to be in the top 200 is uh, it's a great uh, step forward, and it's a great uh, it's a great um, start of the year. We were very happy, and I know Canadian tennis fans were proud of you for making it through qualies at the Aussie Open. Can you describe the atmosphere at your first Grand Slam? It must be like totally next level compared to any other event. It is next level. That I played some WTA tournaments and some junior tournaments at junior Grand Slams, but for the Grand Slam to be there is is honestly surreal. That I was. From very young, I imagine myself being amongst the, the top players, being beside Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, and to to see them walking around so casually, it's um, it was like a dream, but in the in reality. So I was I was there, I was learning, and then to be able to play on the same same course that they played, it's a it's a great motivation for what's to come. Was there any moment in particular where you had to kind of stop and pinch yourself, like whether it was on a practice court next to a really great player that you had grown up watching or in the hallways or, or locker room or anything like that? I think it's the first day that I got there and I just saw the Rod Laver Arena. I had to pinch myself because even though it's their last year for the juniors, but knowing that, I was, that I'm here this year for the professional. It's something that um, I didn't think I was going to to be there since I was very young. It was a dream, and now it's like it became a reality. What um, what opponents so far have you found to be the toughest since you've turned pro? And what was it about their game, would you say, that you found the most challenging amongst the, the players you've faced over the last year? Every opponents are very difficult to play, that they all have different styles of game, different different techniques and different spins. So there's not one that I would say these are harder to play. They're all different and they're all difficult. And I would say I love to play against them. The only thing that I see that's similar is that they 
fight for every point, and it's uh, never easy. You're very diplomatic with your answers. I'm going to ask you a question, but you have to tell me someone specific on this one, okay? <laughs> I cannot, because <laughs> I can't decide. I was, if you ask me that question, I would say to my younger sister, Bianca. She's the hardest player I have to play against. Okay, keeping it in the family. How about a player that you've yet to face, someone you haven't played yet, but that you've really liked to, to sort of test your game against? I'd say um, maybe Simona Hallett. Like, I've seen her on TV, and she's just a great role model, and I was able to play with her at the Rogers Cup, which was a great inspiration and motivation for me. And to see her keep fighting and keep working hard with all the success she's had in the past, it's, a, it's, it's great to see, and it, it really puts in perspective of how professional she is. We're looking forward to seeing you back at the Rogers Cup, of course, again this year, and it'll be interesting to see who you partner with in doubles this time in, in Montreal, hopefully. Um, what part of your own game have you been the most um, happy with in terms of the progress that you've made? And what part of your game are you still trying to um, really improve upon? Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy with my, my whole game, like how I keep trying to be aggressive and uh, taking the ball early, but that still hasn't went away, which I'm happy about it. What I what we were trying to practice in the off season and for the end this year is mostly just do the everything that I've been doing, but in a faster pace, which is perfecting the shots, um, getting more accurate, which uh, will help me for the next level. Speaking of next level, you've got uh, next level international competition coming up with Fed Cup, and once again you've been named to the Canadian squad. What are you most excited about heading to Switzerland to represent your country? It's representing my country, but uh, I was happy that Tennis Canada chose me to be a part of those uh, great players, amongst Bianca, Jeannie, and Gabby. They're all great players, and to be able to in the same team as them is a, like I said, it's great motivation for, for what's to come, and I'm hoping that I can bring something on the team for, for a victory. Well, you're definitely there for a reason. We're looking forward to watching what, uh, what all of you can do. What are your thoughts on this Swiss team that you're going to face? I know they have a very good team, that they, that they have great players, and we are ready for a fight and we're ready for uh, for whatever they're going to give us, and uh, we're just going to go out there and show what we have. The fact that it's so early in your career, I mean, you haven't played against most of the professional opponents you're going to be facing, and I would imagine that goes for the players on the Swiss team. Does that give you a, a bit of an advantage, being the unknown quantity for Team Canada? I would say yes, because not a lot of players know, know who I am and know my game, but... Um, but that's, uh, that's great that I'm an underdog and you've seen a lot of movies and a lot of great stories saying that underdogs are the most dangerous uh, uh, team, dangerous players uh, in the in the tournaments, in the in competition. So we so we we have a young team with us. There's Bianca who's uh, who's also in the who's also a team who also has done great things and that's gonna give us even more confidence with Jamie who also has done great things in the in the past. 
among the Canadian players, whether it's the people who were named to the squad this year or maybe ones that you played with last year, is there anyone in particular who's been especially helpful or welcoming to you? It's everybody. That everybody who's been in the uh, on the team uh, or who is Canadian has helped me a lot with the transition from being a junior to a pro. That I feel Canada is a great uh, country who has the who helps all their players that they don't just pick one and focus on one. They they try to help all the players that they have and all the talent that they that they have. They want to put it out there and try to do the best they can. Well, it's great to hear you're such a tight-knit group and that you're becoming a part of that and, and going to be, we hope and expect, for years to come. Uh, thank you so much, Leila Annie, for joining us ahead of your Fed Cup tie. We wish you and Team Canada the very best against the Swiss. Keep up the good work, and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Mike, so much. Thank you for having me. Anytime. There you have it, uh, Mike's conversation with Layla Fernandez, who is now up to 186 in the WTA rankings. And yes, you can follow her on Twitter. She now has an account. It's at Layla Fernandez. And of course, uh, we'll be tweeting to her as we put this episode up so you can find her on there. But uh, as I said, friendly, kind personality. And I I think she has solid established goals, sort of recognizing where she is at on the tour right now and where she wants to go. Yeah, well, her goals are very um, reachable, I feel like, and reasonable. And I don't think she's putting too much pressure on herself. I mean, the number one goal for her, she said, was staying healthy, both Mm -hmm. Physically, but also recognizing that mentally having to be emotionally balanced throughout the season is important. And I think for a 17-year-old to say that is really impressive. Also, the fact that she wants to get to the top 100. And you know what? She made some nice inroads in some ITF tournaments last year. Uh, She's got that unknown sort of quantity, as I mentioned with her, that other players don't know her game as well. And so she does have the possibility to surprise them. Uh, She says she likes taking the ball early. She likes playing aggressive. So she's going to catch some people off guard uh, in that sense. Uh, And one thing from talking to her, I have to say, is the media training that she's been through must be remarkable because she's so diplomatic when I give her questions like, what was your (laughs) one moment last year that stood out? Or who's the one player that you found, you know, really tough to play against? Boy, she's good at deflecting those questions <laughs> and just playing the, the even ground. Eh? Yeah, she wasn't going to take the bait on, no. on that. Uh, we'll hopefully, well, we definitely will see her in action coming up this weekend when Canada does play that Fed Cup tie and they will be on Switzerland's home soil. So that will be a certain challenge. But just uh, running down the teams for you right now, Bianca Andreescu, we are very hopeful she can play, fingers crossed. Uh, we've seen videos of her training, so that's a great sign. Leila Fernandez there. Eugenie Bouchard is back playing Fed Cup for Canada, which is terrific. And then Gabby Dabrowski, of course, uh, will be anchoring us in doubles. Then you look at the uh, Swiss team. Belinda Bencic, obviously the highlight top name there. but She's she'll... number five, eh? Number five in the rankings as wow. of this week now. Yeah, so uh, and very similar, really, to a Bianca Andreescu. And they've played some competitive matches. Uh, Jill Teichman is also on that team as well. Uh, Timmy Baczynski, who can be a dangerous doubles player in the past, but it has been a while. She's a bit of an older name. She was great on clay back in the well, back in the day, a few years ago before injury. She made the semifinals at Roland Garros twice, I want to say. So, but this is on hard court, so different story. And she hasn't returned to that level of relevance. And then uh, they've got Vogel as well, who just made the finals in Newport Beach, the tournament that uh, Bianca. Uh, one a year ago that kind of got yes, things yes. rolling for her. Yep, and um, Bouchard so, was playing there this past week as well. 
So this Swiss team is going to be a handful for Canada with or without Andreescu. Um, you know, the good thing for Bianca is she's proven she can step back in after a long injury layoff and be very good right off the bat, as we saw last summer at the Rogers Cup. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we don't want to put too much pressure on her, but if she comes back, I wouldn't be surprised to see her playing competitive matches. Uh, and I think Gabby Dabrowski is going to play a big uh, role. I don't know who we should expect to see her in doubles with. I would say Bianca, very unlikely they'd have her come back and play singles and dubs. Yeah. So maybe Layla Annie, who's uh, got some doubles success in ITF events, maybe those two pair up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should also mention what a great start to the year for Gabby with two new partners with Ostapenko and Continent in mixed doubles. And she makes the quarters and the semifinals in those two respective events. Yeah, semifinals, mixed doubles is a terrific result. And learning to play with new, fresh faces and getting used to their patterns and their side learning your patterns. So that's great. She is definitely, bar none, the best doubles player in this Fed Cup tie, no doubt about it. So that's where we can see uh, an obvious advantage for Canada. If you can secure a doubles win, you just steal one singles and you have to feel fr- pretty, pretty good about your chances in a doubles match just with the presence of Gabby Dabrowski, what she can do at the net. She has a strong forehand as well and can serve well. Uh, so it is a pretty compelling tie. I mean, I'm hopeful that Bianca Andreescu plays, but I don't think we should approach it in the sense of we have to see Bianca back. If she's not back, this no. is a disaster. In fact, I don't want to see her back unless she is at 110% Absolutely. of her capacity capacity with no doubts no question marks uh whatsoever so that's coming up friday and saturday the 7th and 8th of february for tennis fans here in our country and uh, definitely going to be tuning in to see uh, how the red and white do out there yeah yeah terrific and uh, on the men's side just smaller tournaments but uh obviously to watch for dennis shapovala playing vashik pospisil and we'll see what felix oje aliasim can do uh opening his tournament against damir Jumer. i know it has been a long and lengthy episode a lot to recap over our first grand slam of the season the australian open and thank you to our guests Layla, Annie Fernandez, and uh, Jonathan Pinfield. This has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.